Turn with me to Philippians, if you would, in your Bibles, the New Testament, one of the letters. I'm just going to dive straight in, I'm going to read the first passage and then we'll crack on with introducing this this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making all my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defence and confirmation of the gospel. And for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and to the praise of God. These are Paul's opening words uh, to, in his letter to the Philippians, and they really set the tone the mood of everything that we are going to study over the coming 11 weeks. They show us from the word go what kind of letter this is and what aspects of our lives and our church we can expect to have challenged as we delve into its teaching. <coughs> and my aim this morning is simple. I just want to touch on three of the great elements that we're going to go through in this letter, the great themes. We just want to start them today and we're going to see them unfold more and more as we come to this letter. So let's look at those just using this passage. First of the great themes we see is Paul himself. You know, Philippians is a place where we get a window into the life of the great apostle Paul, unlike we get in other places in the Bible. Throughout this letter, Paul intimately opens himself up to the readers. What he loves, what motiva motivates him, what he's aspiring to in life, how he sees the world and understands what Jesus has done for him. And what we see as we look through this window into Paul is that it really can challenge some of our assumptions about him. Do you know... Uh, I think often we can think of Paul like this fella here. Do you know, he's a miserable, sexist, theological type, joyless, who just went about and everybody left him at the end of his ministry because he was just so flipping irritating. Do you know, I've repeatedly heard it said, and I don't know if you have, if you've been a Christian for a while, that I love the phrase, that I love Jesus. I love Jesus, he's great. He, do you know, simple, brilliant, but... Just not Paul. Not Paul. That guy's hard work. He just took Jesus' simple gospel and made it an absolute misery. Have any of you come across 
that phrase? No? No, Sheila's saying no. Honestly, two or three times I've chatted to people and that's been their, that's been their thoughts. Why would I follow his example when he tells me to? I'm following Jesus. Do you know, the window into Paul's life, here we see, shows something very different to this man. Do you know, it shows us somebody who is far more like this. He is overflowing with joy and love. Paul overflows with joy. We heard joy mentioned this morning. Joy, Ollie's response, I'm a Christian! Paul overflows with that same enthusiastic joy in every word in this letter. Just look again as we start here. I think undoubtedly there is a serious side to Paul. I'm not going to undermine that here. I think we see that in his use of the term doulos here, in servants. The word actually means bond slaves of Christ Jesus. You know, when a master bought a slave... Or in modern terms, a boss hires an employee. They're buying them to do a job. They're getting them in to do a work. The only difference in modern times is where the money goes. And Paul's use of the word here shows that actually he clearly understands his incredible salvation on the Damascus Road in these terms. That when Jesus Christ completely turned his head turned his life around, moved him from one path of life to another. He didn't do it for nothing. He didn't do it so Paul could put up his feet and just hang out. He did it for a purpose. He did it to employ him in a new work, a new service, his work, to continue and extend the work of Christ Jesus until it was completed to become partners in the spreading of the gospel. You see, Paul sees it, that he was once an employee of sin and death, working for their ends, when Jesus came and headhunted him as he walked along that road. Jesus then paid the release clause and employed him, working for life and freedom and the gospel. He's, if you would, like a loan shark who suddenly gets picked up and employed by Cap. He was causing the problem. Now he's part of the solution. A work of freedom he's involved in. And he took this work seriously, so seriously that he referred to himself as a bond slave to it. (coughs) But what we see so clearly here is that throughout this letter, as he does this work for his new boss, he doesn't become a misery but he finds it the most fulfilling and joyful work. It's a work that causes him to overflow with thanks in what God has done and is doing in his life. I mean, just look at some of the statements in this little bit. Here, I thank God. My prayer with joy. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. They are the opposite of misery. Joyful thanksgiving is Paul's defining characteristic. And what is so amazing about this joyful character is that if we look at Paul's circumstances... And where his work of Jesus has taken him, 
he really should not be filled with joy at all. Do you know, there are a few places we can put the writing of this book. But for the purpose of this series, we're going to date it around AD 62, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Because following study, I think that's the best place that it puts it. And this means for Paul that when he's writing this letter, he had already been imprisoned for over two years. First in Jerusalem, then in a place called Caesarea. He'd undergone three trials. He'd enjoyed, endured a shipwreck where he remained guarded. And he was now under house arrest for another two years, awaiting a trial before Caesar to see if he should be executed or not. According to these circumstances, Paul should have been miserable. He should have been absolutely miserable. He should have been looking like that first picture. I would have been. God, you called me to follow you, to serve you, and all I've got out of it is suffering and pain and difficulty and trial. I'd have had a moan list to God going on. And in fact, the whole reason we have this letter today is because the Philippians sent help, a messenger and a gift to Paul, Epaphroditus, whilst he was in prison because they expected to find him in misery and sadness because of the trials he had faced and they wanted to help him. Philippians is the letter he sends back with Epaphroditus to give news of how he's doing and to respond to what he hears from Epaphroditus. And what we are going to see is there's not a jot of misery in it. Paul is overflowing with joy despite circumstance. Freedom, one of the key things the letter to the Philippians does is it asks you this question. Are you still like Ollie? Are you still like Ollie? How joyous is your Christianity? If there's no joy in it, something's wrong. Have you lost your joy in work and purpose for the Lord? Why is that? Is it because you've experienced pain in it, like Paul did? Suffering, false accusation, failure, fear? This book says, look again at Paul's example. Look at who he is. Paul calls us to follow his example for good reason in this book a number of times. This is one of the great themes of this letter as we go forward. How joyful are you? I love it. I love it when prophecy matches up with what you've got to say. It gives you that extra zing of confidence here. In Ollie, there is a challenge. It's a challenge to joy. Paul wants to see your joy restored as he writes and maintained as he writes this letter. The second great theme and picture in this book is a church doing well. You know, this letter isn't like letter to some of the other, the letters to some of the other churches, like Galatians, where they've taken on some bad teaching 
and gone, they put the gospel plus in there and lost some of the richness of the grace that the Lord had won in their lives. And it wasn't like the Corinthians, which essentially is like a catalogue of how not to do church. And Paul just addressing issue after issue after issue, correcting divisions, idolatry, lawsuits against other members of the church, sexual immorality, humiliation of the poor. It doesn't have a tone of that in it. In comparison, although it's not perfect... Now, we're going to see him address one or two issues with disunity. On the whole, the church at the Philippi is doing a great job. It's had a really good first ten years since it was planted. And it's full of life and colour. You know, the Philippians are a church who have engaged with Paul in the same work that was given him in Jesus. To continue the work of Jesus. And they are loving and supporting Paul like no other church we see. You know, this church, as we go through this book, is a great example after our first five years for us to aspire to Freedom Church. Six years, probably now. Five and a half. You know, because of this great example... Paul's entire tone throughout this letter is one of encouragement and exhortation to keep going, keep pressing on, keep going deeper in Christ, you great church, keep doing the work of the gospel with great joy until the ultimate finish line, until, a term he uses a lot in this letter, the day of Jesus Christ. That is the finish line in Christianity. The day in which Jesus will return to be king of everything, to gather in the harvest, to reward his workers, to separate the wheat from the chaff and bring everything under his rule and reign once and for all. It's going to be a good day, a good finish line. Keep going right the way to that day. That's the cry of Paul to the excellent church. We see it again so richly in this opening passage. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They're doing well. He uses the term, the day of Jesus Christ, the ultimate finish line twice. Partakers with me in grace. Both you're with me. I can see you're doing well. You're supporting me. And we see some of this encouraging tone in this final prayer, which I'll come back to at the end. And it's my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness. He wants them to do well. He wants them to run well. Do you know, it's not that this letter is without challenge because of this, but where we see him address Christian error, like becoming self-centred, that was the bit that that Chris just read. He challenges self-centredness in this letter. Falling into grumbling and disputing. You know, setting our minds on earthly things rather than what's above. Becoming overly anxious having a lack of obedience to Christ, failing to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He's mostly not addressing things that are present in Philippi, but looking at things before, that could get them, slow them down. He's looking at the pitfalls that could stop them running all the way to that ultimate finish line. So whenever he mentions these errors, he's saying, as you run, don't fall down these pits. Don't down tools, don't pull up a pew for any of these reasons. They can stop 
you getting to the ultimate finish line and reward well at the day of Jesus' return. Do you know, this letter for us is like Paul, like a dad or a coach here, cheerleading us. I know that's, a, I know that's so, like, some people love it, some people hate it. Just deal with it. It's a point to be made. This letter is like Paul is a dad or a coach on the sideline. He's cheerleading us and the Philippians. Onwards, upwards! Come on, church, there's more in Christ. Keep pressing forward, you wonderful church. Keep running to the finish line. God has set, not the one man has set. You know, and as such, Freedom Church, it's a letter that will keep asking us a hard question. This question, are you pressing forward in your salvation, in the work that God has laid before you and us? Are you doing that? Or have you got your deck chair out for some reason? Are you retired? Have you downed tools for some reason? Do you know what? I've got some earplugs in my... Because I'm going to Scotland, literally, straight after this. Have you put your earplugs in for some reason? To God. (laughs) You're right, that can be taken the wrong way, couldn't it? Sorry, Sheila. I love Scottish people. Uh, It's because I'm camping. And sometimes people are noisy on campsites and I sleep better. That is not my point. It's not because of the bagpipes. I actually quite like the bagpipes. Anyway, have you retired? Have you down-tooled for some reason before the finish line that Christ has set? See, I'm back on it now. That was seamless. I'm ignoring the mockers. You know, there is always a temptation to settle in Christianity, to plateau, to stop working hard at the things Jesus has called you to. Always. Both in working out our own salvation making sure we live the way Jesus wants us to and in reaping a harvest for him by serving one another and reaching out in the gospel. We can plateau, we can give up, we can down tools. Easiest thing in the world. Loads of warnings about it in the Bible. I want to tell you if you have plateaued in your faith, if you've given up on new works and ventures for God for any reason, if you have stopped working out your faith with fear and trembling like he tells us to, you're going to find this series a rough old thing. Because here, a Paul, Paul is a man walking around a campsite, like a, like a man walking around a campsite with a pair of bagpipes. <laughs> I said pan here, but I've changed it now. For those who've started to doze in the late afternoon, saying keep going for the day of Christ. Keep going for the proper night time. Not just because you don't feel like it anymore, but until the day that Christ returns. This is another great theme of this letter. Finally, createments. It's not a word, I know, I know. Hopefully it'll become apparent why I've created a word. You know, Philippians, the book of Philippians, probably contains some of the most quoted statements in the Bible. really does. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain... Philippians 1.21. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 8. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 4.13. You know, these are the sort of memorable statements 
that we can put in little picture frames on coffee cups. We can tie around our arms on bracelets. And the danger of this is that they can become just like other pick-me-up motivational statements that float around in our culture. They're just one of those many statements, plenty more fish in the sea. Make every day count. Follow your heart. Not often statements where we open the Bible and we ask what context was this written. Because of this, we can miss some stuff. We can miss that when Paul wrote for me to live and to die as gain, he was awaiting what could very clearly have been a death sentence. We miss that when he wrote, I count everything as loss, Paul gave up almost a princely privilege of life and status to pursue the work of the gospel and the prize of Christ. We can miss that when he says, I can do all things for him who strengthened me, he had lost all his freedom and was talking about Jesus' provision through every kind of hardship you can imagine and every kind of financial difficulty that you could come across. We miss that Paul didn't just want these to be coffee cup statements for us, <coughs> but createments. These were truths about Paul life, Paul's life. They were rocks that he stood on truths of Christ that had transformed his whole way of living, his whole mindset. And he wanted to pass these on, these foundations on to other believers. Not so they might hold as a little pick-me-up, but that it might create the same sort of life in believers who heard them, who took hold of them, who understood them. These were createments. They were things he wanted us to understand to create something of the new life that Christ had won in us, in you. Does that make sense why I made up a word? Yeah. If not, deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's these createments, each of which in its own way, cause us to live a life worthy of what God has done in us that make up the spine of this series, not every week, but most, that we're going to be looking at them in context. We're going to be trying to find out how and what new thing they want to create in us through them. And here in his opening passage, we see probably one of the finest of these createments, which is where I just want to land it today. In 1.6, he says, And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You know, the church at Philippi was in an amazingly strategic position. Can you see it at the top there? It was positioned along the Via Ignatia, which linked, it's the trade route that linked Rome to, uh, to Turkey, it linked west to east. It was an incredibly rich city. It was also a, a city um, that was Roman in origin. So it was a point at which culture transformed from predominantly Asian culture to predominantly Western culture. There had been a battle won there sometime before where, where it meant that it was like a little Rome, this place was. There were loads of Roman soldiers who had settled in there and were given all the rights of Rome, followed the Ro Roman culture and way of life and cult. Philippi was essentially ground zero for the church in Europe. And we read that when Paul went there, ten years earlier than this letter, 
it was an almost entirely non-Jewish background as well there. Porson writes that to have a Jewish synagogue, you have to have 10 men. And when Paul arrives in this place in Acts 16 on his second missionary journey, he clearly doesn't find this number of men. Instead, all he finds is a devout prayer meeting attended by an Asian businesswoman, Lydia. But it was an incredibly strategic place. And in hearing this information, we can make a mistake. We can say, wow, what an amazing, strategic-minded, gifted evangelist Paul was to plant such a church in such a strategic position. We can see it as his planning, his thinking, and his efforts that led to this church. However, it's a massive mistake to see things in this way. The honour of who planned, of who instigated, and who planted the church at Philippi goes to God alone. Joe, what do I mean? This is a map of Paul's second missionary journey here. And when Paul set off on it, his strategy was actually to backtrack around Galatia over there in that far side of all to, to reignite uh, and support all the churches that he had already visited uh, on his first missionary journey. However, this starts all right, but what we read in the book of Acts is that as he went on, suddenly he couldn't get anywhere. We read in Acts 16.6 that says he, he basically met a, a brick wall in terms of God's planning to this place. He couldn't gain access to any of the towns and regions he had intended to. Because Acts 16.6 says his, he and his companions were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to enter them. And so he goes around the region not getting very far with his own strategy until he ends up in Troas, in this place. And in Troas, all of a sudden, Paul has a dream in the night, which is a lesson to follow dreams from God. Of a man across the sea in Macedonia, which is that bit of land above it where Philippi is calling him over there, saying, come over here. So, being obedient, he follows. And when he gets to Philippi in Macedonia, Paul barely stays there any time at all before being kicked out by the authorities. But in the short time he is there, God does some amazing things. He saves Lydia, the very first convert in Europe, at a prayer meeting. A rich businesswoman who then saw her whole family saved. He frees a save girl, slave girl with an evil spirit of divination and offends her owner and gets Paul and Timothy chucked into prison. But then he miraculously releases Paul and Timothy from this prison and the whole of the jailer and his family get saved before they finally get kicked out. You see... As you look at the birth story of this church, this was not a church that Paul planned, not a church that Paul started, and not a church that Paul led in the first instance, although he had some input later on. It was a church that God planned, God started, and God's spirit led. It was his work, and all the health we see in it is because of him. Paul was just willing, ready, and mobile to be used by God. 
But it's in this context we find the statement of absolute assurance in God that Paul gives us here. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just as God so clearly started this work 10 years ago in Philippi, I am certain he will get you to the finish line, Paul is saying. What an opening statement about faith. God is not like a cowboy builder who starts a work then sits back drinking cups of tea all day, finishing the three before, getting a better offer and going somewhere else to start a different job. He is totally committed to every work he starts. Right the way through to the ultimate finish line when he will return. Paul is saying here, you've got to understand this. When God starts a work, when he commissions a worker, he will finish that work. This means that when he started a grace work in you through Jesus Christ and calls you to aim him in the, aid him in the work of Jesus Christ, you don't ever need to fear that he's going to abandon you, no matter what the highs and lows of your journey, of your race are. You can have total confidence because the great potter will never down tools when it comes to shaping your life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And as Romans 8 says, he will work all things together for the good of them who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He's going to be running before you to the final finish line, the day of Christ. What does this mean for us? Freedom Church, this is such an important foundation to lay as we embark on this journey of looking at Philippians together. It's a createment that underpins all others. This book is where we are called to live lives worthy of the gospel, follow great examples of workers, pick up our tools, enjoy us employment, but we do this from a place of absolute confidence that first and foremost, we are a work of his grace that he will bring to completion. And that all that we do in him, for him and with him comes out of this confidence in the grace he started in us. The final great thing this morning I want to ask you is do you live out of this confidence? Do you have this assurance? The assurance that he wants to have you. That when he's placed you on that immovable rock of his grace and his truth, that immovable rock is immovable. It's immovable. And the great worker will knock down tools. <coughs> I want to finish this morning. I'm looking forward to exploring this letter with you. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah. Have I, uh, really more than anything this morning, what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to whet your appetite so actually you were anticipant and excited of what is Barbara's favourite letter in the Bible she tells me this morning. <laughs> but I want, to, um, I want to pray for some people this morning on the back of just where we've started, if I can. First, I want to pray for those of you who've lost your joy in the purposes and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want to pray for those of you who have... Uh, taken up a beach seat when it comes to your life with Christ or have never yet known that you were saved for a work, you've not picked up tools yet. 
Thirdly, I want to pray for you if you've lost that sense of assurance and confidence in God that Paul speaks of here. That he who started a good work in you will continue that to the day of Christ Jesus. And I want to pray in a certain way. I want to come back to this great prayer of Paul here over his church family. You know, so much of what we're doing is running well. Uh, and I just want to pray that we would capture his heart to run in all that Christ has for us. Just put out your hand. If you know any of that, any of that just makes sense for you. If the Lord's just put anything, as we've looked at his word this morning, on your heart for you, don't let, don't let anything get in the way of the Lordship of Christ and his word just getting in there for you this morning, the Holy Spirit moving on you. No pride. No, I should be somewhere else. No, no guilt, no shame. You're a work of God. You're a work of God. Let him just come and minister his great love for you. Let him just come and restore you and call you on. It's my prayer that your love would abound more and more. Lord, Father God, let Freedom Church and every member here love and joy abound more and more in you and what you've called them to. With knowledge and all discernment, Father God, pour knowledge and all discernment on this church, on your people, about what is good, Father God, and what should be avoided, what pitfalls are there, Lord Jesus. Help us just discern now in this moment any pitfalls in our lives that we just need to just get out of, Lord God. Father God, we just repent of those now, Lord God. Father, knowing that your grace restores us in an instant, Lord Jesus. Father God, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. Father God, we want to run to that ultimate finish line. Father God, Father, we want to jump all the hurdles in the way, including death, Lord Jesus, with faith and trust in you. Lord God, doing every work that you've called us to. Spirit of God, would you help us run well, Lord Jesus? Would you spur us on and encourage us as we look at this letter, Lord Jesus? Would you get us out of our deck chairs, Lord God? Will we pick up tools, Father God, and will we continue to partner in the work of Christ Jesus like Paul did? And I pray that you would all be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord God, let us be filled with good fruit, Lord God, from your spirit and your word, Lord Jesus. Father God, that God, oh, you, the great God of glory, would be glorified amongst us in everything we do. And those who don't know you would see your glory, Lord Jesus, and come on in through your gate. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.